I'm Jerry Agar filling in for John Moore today, again tomorrow, and then he's back with you on Tuesday. Joining me for the morning brief, Mark Tuohy, who you're very familiar with on this radio station. Good morning, Mark. Good morning, Jerry Yeager. Do you have anything to add to this um, Trudeau uh, separation? It's not yet uh, divorce, or do you want to move on? I have nothing salient to add to the conversation. Dozens rallied to keep streets open to cars in High Park. I think some people have a point. I mean, I saw people that were at the rally holding up signs, you know, my my mom can't get into the park to get to Dog Hill or whatever it's called. There's a restaurant in there. Um, it, it, it's too big a park to cut off like that, I think. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, Toronto suffers from this affliction at city council and in community activism that there's this desire to balkanize the city, meaning let's cut it up into tiny little neighborhoods and keep everybody else out. High Park is not a local community park. High Park is a massive city park. And uh, like every similarly sized city park in the world, you need to move into it and through it. It's too far to walk for most people, for many people, from the edges to all of the activity spaces that are inside. It was never designed to be a local neighborhood park. And when the city says it's done consultation, you know, it it brags about having talked to 10,000 people. Well, that's not even all the people who just live across the street from the park. It certainly isn't people who come to that park to play, you know, organized sports, to participate in the the skating there and the you know in the wintertime and the the all the different activities people drive there from all over the city they take transit there from all over the city it's not just about the families that live across the street and i think it's time for the city to shake its head and realize that it had a good thing going there and it was working fine why did they try to fix it well, yeah, I'm more familiar uh, because of where I lived uh, with Centennial Park, and it's the same thing. There's a difference between those little neighborhood parks that you can walk across in a couple of minutes and, and those humongous parks like that. Like with Centennial Park, for instance, well, first of all, there's a golf course, um, and uh, so you got to drive there. But, but if you want to play baseball or you want to take advantage of the batting cage, which I guess they're getting rid of, you have to drive into the park in order to do that. Yeah, it's huge. I mean, look at Central Park in the New York City in Manhattan. I mean, there it's not a park that's designed for driving, but there are roads that cross Central Park because it is a massive piece of real estate. And to get to some of the activities in there, you might have to drive through there. But to get to the rest of the city, you have to drive through it as well. I mean, this is, you know, we're not reinventing something here. It's This is just the way parks like this are managed. And already there wasn't much vehicle access to High Park. There was one sort of uh, U-shaped to one-way street that went through most of it to give you access, then a couple of roads that connected with Parkside Drive and the Lakeshore that are largely blocked off, uh, and it's all car-free during the weekends anyway. So, like, it was working fine. Stop fixing it. Okay, so there's a labor dispute going on, as you know, as everybody knows, with Metro. 27 of their stores are closed. The latest move by Metro is they are halting striking workers' access to benefits during the labor dispute. Maybe you'll disagree with me, but I think you provide uh, benefits to workers. They're not working. So it it seems uh, a fair move on the part of Metro. Do you agree or disagree? 
Yeah, no, 100%. I mean, when you withhold your labor, you have to expect that you're no longer going to get paid for what you're not doing. Benefits are part of that. Workers might not think that way, but their union does. And in this case, the union had recommended the workers agree with the negotiated settlement they'd reached with management. The workers said, no, it's not good enough. Well, this is one of the consequences. When the money stops coming in the front door, uh, that money goes to pay for things like wages and benefits. The union has offered up striking workers, uh, you know, a facsimile of benefits through their strike pay allocation. So the union doesn't seem to be griping about this. It's just the workers who suddenly having a, a, you know, a life lesson about where money comes from. Okay, so I'm not working. I'm uh, grieving my employer. I have shut down my employer. What right do they have to treat me like somebody who doesn't work there? <laughs> exactly. The uh, yeah, I, it's just you kind of have to shake your heads. On the other hand, you know the employer needs to be careful because you're going to eventually have to work with these people again. So you don't want to you don't want to go too far. But this, I think, is entirely reasonable. All right. So there's a report that Doug Ford underspent this year to the tune of seven billion. But we don't have a seven billion dollar surplus. So I look at this as you could call it underspending. I call it maybe trying to stay within your means. Yeah, this is a challenge in that uh, there's so many. I'm not entirely sure what this information means. Uh, the financial accountability officer who puts out these reports looks at the uh, financial statements as they're uh, available from the Ministry of Finance. They don't have the same information. But, yeah, if this means that the government uh, didn't need to spend $7 billion in order to provide the services that it said it was going to provide, then this is good news. I'm glad we've saved the money and we can put it to, you know, spending down, paying down debt and, and reducing the deficit. But if it means that the government didn't deliver on services that it needs to deliver, then there is something to, you know, be looked at here. The problem is in government, Jerry, we only ever measure, you know, how much we promise, how much we say it's going to cost. We very rarely measure what it did cost, as this uh, report is doing, and we never measure what actually the government performed. And that's the problem. We should be focused on the outputs, the performance, not the, uh, you know, the, the ribbon cuttings and the promises and the uh, spending expectations. All right. So we're going to be talking about this at 820 again this morning. Kevin Bagnell, owner of servers and shakers, a service-related staffing business in Toronto, on the issue of the SmartServe certification. A couple of my kids had this for jobs that they were doing. You you take a little test and uh, show some understanding of the liquor laws of the province in order to be able to work in a liquor-related job, whatever it might be. My daughter spent some time, she was standing at the LCBO, would you like to try this? You know, she was, uh, whatever you call that, sample server or something like that. And so she had to have this thing. It didn't seem like it was too onerous uh, a test to pass. What's happening now, Mark, in Ontario is it used to be once you got the thing, you had it for life. Now uh, some are saying, well, how about you've got to renew this thing every five years? That doesn't seem unreasonable to me, but maybe I don't understand it well enough. 
Yeah, I don't think a recertification uh, is unnecessarily a bad thing. Where I get concerned is where we create an industry around training for, you know, legislated uh, qualifications. The training that I've had on government mandated training, like boat operators, like gun licensing, like uh, you know, motorcycle licensing, anything where the government says, "Here is the syllabus. Here's the curriculum that you." Have have to teach here's how you have to teach it uh, it's horrible training it just isn't done very well and it's often rife with errors but that's the way the government said it's going to be in this case you know they've bolted on new requirements as part of smart serve which I think are not bad things like well let's make sure everybody understands the signs and signals of uh, sexual tra- you know human trafficking and sexual assault and sexual harassment uh, that's great but how much should we be putting on the shoulders of a minimum wage bartender and waiter I don't you know we're gonna end up in a situation much like cab drivers in the city of Toronto where they pretty much had to be thoracic surgeons in order to get a cab license which you know coincidentally was lucky because a lot of the immigrants were thoracic surgeons before they became <laughs> cab drivers. but uh, you know it just seems like we're expecting too much from these people um, well, that, that's an excellent point. Uh, there, it, it maybe should be that the only expectation in some of those things you're talking about are on uh, people at a management level at uh, a facility that serves alcohol. Yeah, I think uh, that might make sense. I, I mean, I think the information is good, and who would begrudge uh, learning that? But mandating it, it becomes an industry where there's now you know an entire organization that is not for profit, but that doesn't mean all the people there aren't making good money who are coming up with new things they have to bolt onto this training so that they have a reason to continue drawing a paycheck. And the training gets more and more complicated, and it becomes more and more onerous, and it will get more expensive. And you know, I, it's just a, a vicious cycle. Yeah, well, as I said, we'll be talking about this more at 8.20 as well. Mark Tui, thanks very much.